The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Uh, so I was the, uh, the COO at Christian Camp and Conference Association for 15 years, and I got the invitation to become the CEO at the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions, now called CityGate Network. And people said, how can you leave Christian camps and conferences, places like BlackRock I saw up on the screen and all over the place? And, uh, and they said, it's a difference of night and day, isn't it, when you go from Christian camps to, to rescue missions? And um, I said, no, think about it. Camps and rescue missions, they both sleep people, right? They both feed people. Uh, you're doing chapel services in both. You're doing education in both. You do HR, PR, buildings and grounds, all the... the fundraising stuff in both. The only difference is you go to Halawasa or Pine Cove or Sky Ranch or all those different places because it's like this fun resort. You go to a rescue mission because it's a last resort. It's all about the ministry of hospitality. And so I've been doing this now on 12 years. So let's turn back the clock. Uh, let's go all the way back to, um, let's say, 1972. And uh, Glenn Kantner and Patty Gurman and I went down to somewhere by that spooky underground station on the Frankfurt L that they never opened up. I think it was called Franklin Square or something like that. And walked from there up to, uh, it was the Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission. This is not how old uh, I was when the picture was there. That's from a long time ago. But uh, that, was, uh, that was where I had my first experience at a mission. And uh, this was not the first mission, however. The first one was Macaulay's Water Street mission in New York. A guy who was saved in Sing Sing prison and said God told him there laying on the floor of his cell, you clean the people up on the outside and I'll clean them up on the inside. And so he started the Macaulay Water Street mission and missions went across North America just popping up. I was outside and noticed, if you haven't read it, uh, on your history board that uh, Bible Institute of Pennsylvania had its very first class in a rented room at Christ Rescue Mission in North Philadelphia in 1913, which is when this association also officially started. And uh, missions just scattered across North America, and they were there throughout all of history, at least the 20th century, for people who just needed something. For example, uh, the early missions worked with those gangs. Those are some of the immigrants that came in. Remember the movie, The Gangs of New York? Hopefully you didn't see it, but uh, there's some of the pictures of those people. And then in the 1920s, they called it the Roaring Twenties, alcohol started coming across all of North America. And people were, were getting drunk for the first time in their life because it was something that was now acceptable. And missions started getting a lot more people coming in that, that needed addiction recovery. And then in the 1930s, you had the Depression. People stood in line for for hours and hours trying to get a job. And when that didn't happen, they stood in line to get free food. And then they stood in line at a mission to get uh, a bed for the night. You had people coming home from World War II and the Korean War and post-traumatic stress disorder, and they never talked about it, didn't diagnose it. And you had people showing up at missions that had those kinds of needs. The 60s, you had the, those drugs and the, the hip, the pop culture. And then the 70s, we did something very interesting. We decided there's not going to be a need for any more insane asylums, as we called them. And so we opened them all up and said, here, take these psychotropic drugs. You can go home and live with your parents. And about 30% did, and about 70% went out on the street. So we started to see 
the, the populations change in missions. And then you had the 80s and all the excesses in cocaine working its way into the... And then 90s, you had uh, immigrant groups coming in from overseas, not just south of the border, but in Asia, and started bringing other people to missions looking for a place to stay. And then even in the early part of the 21st century, with the Great Recession things changed even more dramatically. You see, before, this was a long line of men winding around the block looking for what they called three hots in a cot. And then, uh, then when they opened the asylums, you started getting people who were not just functional at one time, but needed to kind of come to a mission to regain their functionality. You had people who were never functional. But in the 21st century, with some of the economics, what we started seeing in missions were people who weren't chronically homeless they were just experiencing homelessness. And so we started getting notices from directors saying, I'm getting emails saying, uh, can you make a reservation for me? The, my, our apartment complex was just foreclosed on and we're being thrown out and it's me, it's my niece and my uncle and two cats. And, you know, that's what we started happen, seeing in missions. Uh, today, hunger, homelessness, abuse, and addiction are just all over North America. I could take you to just about any city, and you would see this. If you live in the suburbs, if you live in rural areas, you only see a part of it. But you have to know where to go, and you've got, you have to be distressed that America looks like this today. And uh, it's a political football from time to time, but it, it's something where these people are precious in God's sight. They've been forgotten. They've been left. And many of them have no desire to change. But a lot of them just need that new starting point. So the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions is now called CityGate Network. And we changed the name. It's a whole rebranding thing. If you remember in, in biblical times, the city gate was not just a doorway, but it was an area between the inner gate and the outer gate where somebody who was running could come across the threshold and have water, have food, have bandages. It was a place where you would have spiritual leaders sitting there. Abraham and Lot sat in the city gate, not at the city gate, but in the city gate to welcome the stranger. The city gate was a place where they held court. It was a place where you could get, have commerce. It was a place to have new beginnings, and that's why you say, enter here, start anew. Well, right away, people will say, isn't the church the city gate? Isn't that supposed to be the city gate? Well, it, yeah, but I'll tell you, I can take you a lot of urban areas, and the churches downtown are padlocked until 10 of 11 on a Sunday morning. Or people will say, you go to that church, the family will never talk to you again. Others will say, well, the government is supposed to be the city gate, right? Yeah, but there are some folks who would say, you go to the government, they'll take your kids away. Or you could be on the next plane to Mexico City. So CityGate Network is this fellowship, this association of about 300 missions. People say, how many do you have? I said, well, you have 297 who have paid their membership dues, 314 who think they've paid their membership dues. Somewhere in between is our association. And uh, probably in the city where you live, there is a member of this association. In fact, in most U.S. cities, a member of... CityGate Network is the largest homeless service provider. In some cities, it's the only homeless service provider. And we're doing a lot of work in Washington, D.C. these days with some of the senators. Uh, ben Carson has become a good friend at, at HUD. And I'm just applauding some of the stuff that he is wanting to do because the first time he's saying, let's stop measuring success by the number of people we get off the street and into government housing. Let's measure success by the number of people we get out of government housing and get standing on their own and uh, having their own 
place to live and, and, and being stable. So CityGate Network, we'll talk later. If you want to ask me a this organization part of you, and we'll talk about where you live and what's out there. But uh, again, all over North America, uh, this, this organization. I say North America, we're U.S., Canada, Mexico, Caribbean. And uh, there's a, a mission in Barbados, really, that needs some help. If anybody wants to go down uh, this winter, let me know, and we can go down there. So as I travel, um, I, I'm asked several questions. I put three of them up here. Um, the first one, are things getting better or worse when it comes to what's going on with hunger, homelessness, abuse, and addiction? Well, my response has to be depends on who you talk to and what statistics you're looking at. Because if you look at uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, uh, a few years ago they were 680,000 homeless people. And then they knocked it down to 640 and then 570-something. They're down uh, 532,000, I think is what they're saying. But if you look over at the Department of Education, they're telling you they have 1.3 million homeless kids in North America. So numbers are not jiving here. And one of the reasons is because they do the point-in-time count, the pit count, in January where people say, I'm going to bother with these people coming. and They disappear. They go sleep on a friend's couch. They, uh, they, they check into a mission, which sometimes they're found there, and sometimes they just go deep into the woods. So... Uh, 530,000, if you want to kind of look at those numbers, uh, when we talk to our missions, because all of them are filled uh, to capacity, we, we think that somewhere in North America, U.S. Canada, on any given night, there's probably a million people who are homeless out there and struggling. People, again, addicted. People, mental illness, of 60 to 80 percent uh, may have mental illness. So are things getting better or worse? Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening here, and there's reasons for these higher numbers. Uh, back in the, back in, when I went to, to Karen University, 200 to 500,000 was the top number, and now we're probably seeing double. Here are the reasons. Uh, one is legalized marijuana. Uh, Denver Rescue Mission, when Colorado became marijuana-friendly, um, Brad Miley, the director there, said, John, uh, our 188-bed facility is full. Our, our overflow facility of, uh, of 50 more beds is full, and then the warehouse that we open up for Code Blue, that's full. Everybody came out there, used all their money to buy marijuana, and had no place to stay, so they put out the homeless people by coming and staying at the mission. Every place that we see marijuana being legalized, we're seeing that happen. It's kind of, kind of back and equalizing itself. Now most places look like a Grateful Dead concert just let out, and so you have no idea who's who and where they are. Untreated mental illness is an, an issue, and we're seeing a lot of that. We also see post-traumatic stress disorder of all the people coming back from the Middle East and, uh, and just going out into rural areas and, and living with their issues. Availability of opioids. You know, opioids are now the number one killer of Americans under 50, opioid overdose. Uh, we see LGBTQ youth seeking acceptance. Uh, HUD's numbers will tell you, if you want to look at them, 70% of homeless youth claim that they are gay, lesbian, trans, bi, or questioning their sexuality. Uh, early release from foster care. About half of those people who get out of foster care claim to be homeless for some period of time. Human trafficking. It's not just happening in places where major sporting events are held. It's not just happening uh, in the biggest cities. We're seeing human trafficking in places like Knoxville, Tennessee, in places like 
uh, Salina, Kansas, in, uh, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, places on interstates where people uh, jump out of a car at the right opportunity and run to find safe haven. Politics is another reason we're seeing a lot of this. Um, there's competing philosophies out there. And the competing philosophies, number one, would be from the government. Homelessness is because of a lack of affordable housing and probably low wages. Uh, what we say is lack of affordable housing and low wages makes a difference, but also family dysfunction, mental illness, addictions, lack of education, lack of career skills, and it goes on and on. You see, the government is, does a great job of trying to work on people's physical poverty, but you who are in ministry or heading to ministry, what we look at is ending their spiritual and relational poverty, which is why many of them are in physical poverty in the first place. You know, we say uh, people don't become homeless when they run out of money, at least not right away. They become homeless when they run out of relationships, when they run out of community. So, uh, second question, are Christians making a difference? I'm ask that, you know, what is happening? And I would say some are, but, you know, there are a lot of, of people who don't understand the dynamics that are out there on the street. And so, you know, you see something like this, and I'm saying, who is this helping? You, uh, you say, well, that's, this is wonderful. Look at these people who got arrested for feeding in the park, and you hear some of those kind of things. Let me tell you, there's a lot of people and youth pastors who would say, we're all going down to the park, and, and we're taking pizzas. Let's go. And, and they load up the back of the van with 40 pizzas, head off to Acacia Park or wherever they're going, and open it up, and the youth group are going around passing out the pepperoni and the mushrooms and, and just saying, well, this is in Jesus' name, and, and who are you? And they're, and they're having great relationships, but they come back, and, and have a, 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 a unusual downtime and uh, kind of reassessing what they've done in the youth group. But meanwhile, the people back in the park are saying, well, I guess we should stay here because maybe we'll be fed again. And sure enough, the Methodist church goes down the next night, and the Episcopal church takes burritos down. Uh, there's a guy out in San Diego who loves, the, they call them the Burrito Brothers, and they make these two-pound burritos and they take them down on Saturday night and give them to all the homeless people down around, what's that, Petco Field or whatever the one in San Diego is. And they pass them out to all the homeless people. And, and my friend says, do you know what happens to a homeless guy who eats a two-pound burrito five hours later? He says, that's part of the issue that we're dealing with down here. And then they leave. And so uh, in many places, there are people who have good hearts to help, but they're doing nothing but being poverty pimps. In, in the name of Jesus, because they don't understand that life transformation is what is needed here. You know, if you read Bob Lupton's Toxic Charity, you give one time, it's appreciation. The second time, it's anticipation. The third time, expectation. The fourth time, entitlement. And the fifth time, dependency. And when you have that going on, you're not going to see the changes that we need to see. See, there are four ways that we try to move people around the world from human suffering to human flourishing. Human suffering happens around the world, and we say, this can't go on. We have to do something. And so the first way is humanitarian aid. That's where we fly in with the big C-5 planes and drop off the bags of rice and drill wells in Tanzania or bring in doctors. And, and, and it's a crisis that's going on that's, that's uh, something that happened because of the environment or something happened because of politics. And uh, you have a lot of ministries that do a good job on this. The second way we try to move people from human suffering to human flourishing is disaster relief. Disaster relief 
comes after a hurricane, a fire, a tornado, and you get the National Guard out there giving sandwiches to people sitting on their roof and, uh, until they can get them into the gymnasium where the Salvation Army is there and putting them on cots, and they're still giving them the same sandwiches. And then Habitat for Humanity comes along and takes them and knocks out the wallboards and sweeps the muck out and helps them rebuild. And eventually they've worked their way from human suffering to human flourishing. The third way we try to move people from human suffering to human flourishing is community development. That's where you go into places like Camden, New Jersey, or East St. Louis, or Richmond, California, and you work with civic leaders and church leaders, and you start building better buildings and, and new parks and education and jobs and creative industry. Those things happen. This is where you learn the phrase, you can't make a difference from a distance, and so you have to go in. This is what Shane Claiborne does. I was just at the CCDA conference with uh, Ray Bakke and John Perkins last week. The fourth way we move people from human suffering to human flourishing, the fourth way is life transformation. And as somebody who's an alcoholic or a runaway or somebody escaping a pimp, somebody who's just been homeless, somebody drugs, somebody with mental illness. And what that looks like is this. I'm under a bridge tonight. It's going to be below freezing. I haven't eaten in two days, and those guys who are chasing me for my shoes know where, I, where I'm staying. Wait, there's the mission van. It's saying I can come and stay at the mission tonight and get something to eat. I'll be safe. But what good is that? Because I'm addicted. <coughs> You mean there's an addiction recovery program I can go to? Well, that's wonderful. Or maybe the person has mental illness. Well, you mean there's a class I can go to? I can see a doctor? Well, but I'm, you know, I don't know anything. Wait a minute now. The mission says I can get my education here. You can teach me social skills. I can get my GED, but I don't have any trade. I don't know anything. The mission is saying now you can, you can put me on a career track. We have so many missions now that are offering all kinds of, of programs for, for people who need this. Uh, just at a mission the other day where um, the, the director says, you come to the mission and you don't get free food. You walk in and you say, hi, I'm here. I'd like to get something neat. Step up here, would you, and uh, talk to Connie. And uh, Connie's typing and tell me where you're from. What's your name? Do you have an address? You just live on the street? Okay, look into the camera. And out comes within 90 seconds a, a plastic card the size of a credit card with a barcode. Top loaded for a week's worth of services. What do you do with this? Well, you can go get something neat. If you want coffee and toast, it's two points. If you want coffee, toast, and bacon, it's seven points or whatever. Well, how do I get more points? Well, you get more points by investing in your life. Go do a life assessment, and you can do that, and we'll get another half week's worth of services. Yeah, but well, how do I get more after that if I want to stay? Well, let me tell you what the career options are. We have a, a, You can learn to be... a, a a telephone answer and do telemarketing, and that's an eight-week course, and when you finish in eight weeks, you can be making $15 an hour, but you got to clean up your life a little bit. And you can go into welding school. You can go to all these schools, and you're getting investment. The, the value that you put into your life is on a card moving people forward. That's what life transformation is about. That's what missions are doing. That's why we've changed our name to CityGate Network. Are Christians making a difference? If they're doing the right things and, and connecting with the right organizations, they can make a difference. But it has to be one that understands life transformation. And then what can I do? Well, here's what you can do as you're looking at ministry and where you want to go from here. Figure out your complaint. What do you mean, my complaint? Well, you know, Christians sometimes complain a lot. You're immediately thinking of someone in 
sits in the third row in the church where you go and complaining it's too, too hot in here, it's too noisy, the band's too loud. You know, Habakkuk in the Old Testament, chapter 1, he complained to God, all right? How long can I cry for help? Or will you not hear me? And he goes on complaining. And then the Lord kind of says to him, God says to him, it's going to get worse. You think this is bad. And Habakkuk says, aren't you not from everlasting to everlasting? And, and uh, finally, he complains again. And then he sits back. And in chapter 2, God responds. He says, I've heard you, okay? Write it down. Make it plain on tablets. Give it to a herald who will run with it. What God is saying is, understand your complaint even more than you think you do. Figure out what really bugs you, what's going on out there. And then give it, give it all the thought you can to get it down in writing. And, and this, this verse, give it to a herald who will run with it. Kind of means two things. You know it so well that when you're running and it's moving up and down, you can still say it. In other words, it's in your DNA. But also that you're getting the word out there. We have a lot of ministries out there. And as you start looking at where you want to go, what you want to do, make sure you don't take over and you're doing somebody else's complaint. You're doing something that, they, that they've inherited. What hurts you? I went to uh, my first convention. You know, I came from the Christian camping world. I told you over to rescue missions. And I looked at the history of all the conventions they had. And the, the, the themes were wonderful. God in the city. You know, his, uh, his purpose, our calling. My first convention, I said, we're going to shake things up. My first convention was called Calling All Complainers. And, uh, and, and I lost some members over it. They said, how disrespectful. I said, no, you have to have a complaint. I put a soapbox in the middle of the floor, had a cordless mic, and handed it to somebody. And says, what really bugs you? You're working at a mission that for years and years has helped people with food and housing and then addiction recovery. And then you send them out onto the street. We have to go the rest of the way. That's what we're doing in City Gate Network. It's the housing. It's, it's the education. It's the career planning. It's the housing. It's getting back into community, into a church, so they can come back and do their own missional living and help with these missions. So I, I put it out there, and nobody knew what to do. Finally, this one gal comes out, and she steps up, and she goes, I'm just sick and tired of all these young girls coming to our bus station and getting off. And, have, and she, she starts weeping. She says, I have nowhere to go. She says, I need to do something for them good, that's a complaint. Write it down, make it plain, tell people about it. One after another, people start up, start talking about their own complaint. So you have to figure out your complaint. The second thing is you need to be a collaborator. Uh, there's, there are so many ministries out there that are limited, and there's, there, there's overlap because they haven't learned to collaborate with others. And if they're Christian ministries, maybe because they have a different view on eschatology or sign miracles or something like that. I'm saying we've got to come together and stop all of these small little groups and silos if we're going to make a difference in the world. Live by the code is what I recommend to you. When you say live by the code, what do you mean? Well... People say, I've heard it many times, I, I just wish that the Bible could tell me one place where I could have everything I need to live the Christian life, what God wants from me. You know, I, I mean, there's the Ten Commandments, but there's love your, your neighbor, and but love God, and, and what do I do? I think it's nowhere more plain than it is in Micah 6.8, where it says, uh, here's what God wants of you. Here's what he wants of you. 
to, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That word justice is mishpat. What that really is talking about is working with people in, in their point of need. Those in poverty, look up Isaiah 117 and some of those other verses. Anytime mishpat is used, it says, this is a lifestyle you will have if, if you understand what God wants, that you will be concerned about the poor, the hungry, the homeless, the abused, the addicted, and then to love mercy, which means not saying, boy, I'm glad the troops are headed to the border. It's saying, let me see what can happen to these people who I'm hoping you know, maybe in another life would not happen. But look what's happened. They're not getting what everybody thinks they deserve. You know, I'm talking about people all over the streets, not just a border issue. But I'm looking at all of those things as well. And then to walk humbly with your God. Uh, I had a, as a camp director, I gave me a shirt. Maybe it was you, Matt. I don't know. It says, there they go and I must catch them for I am their leader. You know, and, and what we're talking about when walking humbly with your God in daily connection moving forward. Then the last thing to share with you is my last point. What do you do? You make it your legacy. Start thinking now about your legacy. Keith is going to talk to you, as he has done for, for many others, about you get a plan now for what's going to happen in 40, 50 years going forward. And what is your legacy? One of my favorite verses is over here in uh, Hebrews, and we'll end with this. Uh, a really... A really powerful verse. Hebrews 11 is God's hall of fame, you know, the faith chapter. I love this verse. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And now you're looking at this poor guy on stage saying, oh, he read the wrong verse and he doesn't know what the right verse is and he's stuck. No, that is the verse. Hebrews 11.22, when you look at Hebrews 11.22 and see who God called as faithful, you should have some questions. Like, why did Rahab the harlot make it? Why did Barak make it but Deborah didn't? And you, and you go through all of these. And then you look at why God called them faithful. By faith, when he was dying, jo Joseph made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. And then you move on. That was it. See, God didn't say Joseph was faithful because he didn't stick it to his brothers when he had the chance. He didn't say Joseph was faithful because he resisted Potiphar's wife. He didn't say Joseph was faithful because he saved the whole known world from starvation. He said Joseph was faithful because right before he died, he made some funeral arrangements. Did that surprise you? I picture it like this. There's Joseph on his deathbed. There's the, you know, the guy in the big diaper with the fan on the stick going like this and, you know, like that. Uh, and and what he, Joseph says, come here, get close. I want you to know something, family. If I said the word, they would build another pyramid for me out in the desert. They would carve my face on a sphinx. There's nothing I could ask for because God has made it possible for me to have means. But I didn't live for any of this. None of it.
My values are with God's value system. I've always been about that. Maybe you didn't see it, but this is the way that I'm going to prove it to you. I believe he's going to take his people out of here. And when he does, whether it's five years, 50 years, 500 years. So all of your family and all of the, my relatives who have come behind understand one thing, that I didn't live through Egypt. Here's what you're going to do. Dig up my bones and take them with you. Bury them in what God promised. And if you read the story of the Exodus, somebody was dragging Joseph's bones for 40 years. I would have said, they're dust. Let's just leave them here in the Sinai. No, they buried them in Joshua, the end of Joshua, because Joseph wanted to make a statement. You're young. You've got a lot of years ahead of you. Let me tell you now, start to make God's plan, understanding justice and mercy, part of your legacy. Make that what you're living for in the days ahead, but start doing it now. I'm so pleased to see so many of you who think you know so much that you weren't afraid to miss chapel and study for the exams. Glad to have you here. I'd be glad to talk to you. See you tonight at uh, Lloyd. What time is that? Four, uh, four o'clock, 4.30 something. If anybody is in the social work major, and we'll talk about it. Let me pray and we'll be on. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful people who are inspiring me uh, by their attentiveness and uh, they have so much that they can look forward to. Pray that the the messages that they hear uh, will uh, be emblazed on their hearts so they will make a difference, for not only for them, for the people around them and then their families in the days ahead. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.